0: Hi, this is SD, host of the Friday a public affair. I hope you help us by contributing to W O R T, and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye.
1: Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level.
2: No power frequency. In
1: power ain't giving up nothing. No change without struggle. No one in power.
0: W.O.R.T. 89.9 FM, listener-sponsored community radio, Madison, Wisconsin. And hello, welcome to A Public Affair. I am Esti Dinor. I want to thank the people who subbed for me while um, I was gone in the area somewhat close to the area we will be talking about today. You may have seen the film Oppenheimer. I have not yet, so I cannot speak to it. But um, it may have brought back uh, some of the horrors that uh, nuclear weapons uh, bring, bring, brought, still are bringing with them to the world. And today we will be talking about the horrors of some of the stages of making nuclear weapons as manifested by one place, the uh, Hanford Nuclear Reservations. With us to discuss that is Joshua Frank. He's an award winning journalist and an editor of Counterpunch. Hunch. He is co-author of several books with Jeffrey St. Clair, most recently before this book, The Big Heat*, Earth on the Brink. And we will be talking about his newest book, I believe, Atomic Days, The Untold Story of the Most Toxic Place in America. Hi, Josh. Thank you for joining us today.
3: Uh, thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here.
0: And this is your latest book, yeah?
3: It is. Yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah. It's the one. Well, so more people have heard about Oppenheimer recently. I think still a lot of people have not heard about Hanford. Tell us what it is.
3: Um, Well, Hanford was one of the three locations chosen during the Manhattan Project uh, to develop aspects of atomic weapons for the U.S. government at the end of World War II there. Um, Los Alamos and Oak Ridge are pretty well-known sites. Uh, Hanford, less so. Um, However, Hanford, in my opinion, was over the course of its lifetime, probably more important to the uh, nuclear arsenal and weapons development for the US government. It produced most of the plutonium that ended up in nuclear weapons. Um, It operated from the mid 40s into the late 80s, the end of the Cold War. And during its lifespan, really um, just was a conveyor belt of producing this nuclear fuel and in the process left uh, this large area in eastern Washington state as a toxic uh, radioactive zone. Um, Hanford, it's located in eastern Washington along the Columbia River, uh, close to the town of Richland which is really just a government town uh, at this point. And it was during the Manhattan Project and during the Cold War and and today it it is as well, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, uh, because now it's it's a huge environmental cleanup. Um, But it was chosen in large part because it was a rural area. It was sort of off the grid. It wasn't near any urban centers. Uh, The indigenous people that lived on the land, uh, also peasant farmers were easily removed. Um, they needed access to cold, clean water to cool down the reactors that they had there. There was nine in total during its its lifetime. Um, so they they had that because of the Columbia River. They also had constant electricity because of the dams along the Columbia River. So there's a lot of reasons why that that uh, site was was chosen. Um, but today, uh, that that site still remains um, a toxic wasteland of uh, leftover, Remnants of the Cold War. Uh, You know, I like to say that the the Cold War is still bubbling out there at Hanford, Um, and it's a huge, massive area. It's 586 square miles. Um, There are 177 big, hulking underground tanks that are holding 56 million gallons of radioactive waste. Um, and they don't really know what to do with that waste. They have a plan for it. They've had a plan since the late 80s, but really no progress has, has been made. And and I get into a lot of the details in the book, of course. Um, but there are a lot of looming disasters out there, which I'm sure we can talk about as well.
0: Yeah, so so you mentioned the large number of tanks that they are buried underground there. How safe are they? <laughs>
3: In my view, and uh, even even proponents of nuclear technologies are very concerned about these tanks. Um, the tanks were really only supposed to last a couple of decades. They were really just a stopgap for uh, producing all of this, you know, this fuel. Um, so basically, when in a reactor, uh, after the the process of you know of, of fission uh, and producing plutonium and enriching plutonium, a bunch of waste is produced. Uh, They needed to put this waste somewhere, it can't just go anywhere, Uh, so they put it in these tanks and the engineers and developers at the time when they were developing these tanks in the 40s and 50s and some in the 60s were very concerned and said, you know, these tanks are not going to last forever, Uh, we need to figure out something to do with this. But the the quest to build up the arsenal of atomic weapons by the U.S. government was much more important than dealing with um, the disaster that was looming at Hanford. Uh, over its course of its life, uh, there's been 67 known leaks out of these tanks. Right now, two of those tanks are leaking. Um, and just to put it in perspective, these tanks are only you know six, seven miles from the Columbia River. As that radioactive material uh, gets into the ground water supply, it can make its way to the Columbia River. And so it's a really dire situation. The, the, the plan has been to vitrify this stuff that's in these tanks uh which is to turn it into glass um it sounds really you know they made it sound like it was really easy you just put some uh (laughs) put this stuff in ice trays basically and store it forever but that's not been it's proved to be very very difficult because the contents in each one of these tanks is different they're they they vary and obviously it's highly radioactive and potentially catastrophic if something goes wrong um, so it's it's proven very, very difficult. The, the Department of Energy oversees the cleanup project and they contract the work out. Um, the, the big work going on is by Bechtel, which has a very bad track record. And one of the facilities that's supposed to, you know, help vitrify this material called the waste treatment plant has already run $60 billion. Um, it's just, it's the large out there is astronomical. There's very little oversight. And I interview uh, a couple of whistleblowers in the book that really get into the the troubles that are plaguing the project. And I'd just like to, for your listeners to, when I say cleanup, um, I really don't mean that this site will ever be fully remediated and safe. Um, I, I mean, I hope that it one day will be safe, but it's never going to be back to its pristine condition that it was back in the 1930s and 40s. Uh, I, I, I refer to cleanup as just getting this to a place where we're not going to be on the verge of a disaster and we're, and we're, we're not there yet.
0: Yeah. And, uh, what is the half-life of plutonium? And maybe you should explain what that means. Yeah. To... So,
3: well, plutonium, yeah, the half-life of 24,000 years, but plutonium remains radioactive for about 250,000 years. So it's around for a very, very long time. Um, and some of the other chemicals out there, uh, there were hundreds of uh, you know there are billions of gallons of chemical waste that was also left out on the site that was dumped into these underground trenches literally into the dirt um so all around this whole site of hanford are, are different aspects that need remediation it's not just the tanks it's it's also uh remedying the soil um and ensuring there's not you know there's under certain buildings where they were reprocessing materials there's been radioactive materials that have been found even just a few like last month they had we found out that they had underestimated how much material had made its way into the groundwater or supplied near the columbia river um the big plume of radioactive uh you know materials that are that are there so it's a really uh, scary situation and um, it's going to be lingering. Like you said, you know, plutonium lasts a very long time. it's 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 going to be around for a very long time, and which is why we need to get this in in
2: order,
0: yeah, so it's interesting. I'm thinking about numbers here, two hundred and fifty thousand years half which means that's the length that it'll be as toxic as it is, basically. Mm-hmm. And the land, as uh, you mentioned briefly, was taken to a large degree um, from Native American tribes who um, generally adhere to the notion of seven generations, right? You keep your um, right. y- your soil, your air, your water clean so that the seven generations after you can be healthy and good. And so tell us... Um, Tell us about uh, who was living there before they made it into the Hanford nuclear site. And uh, what was it like before then?
3: So the Columbia River, uh, you know, today it's the lifeblood of the Pacific Northwest. Um, it, it's irrigated waters for tens of thousands of Northwest farmers. There's commercial fisheries along the Columbia River. Uh, But back before settler colonialism plagued the lands, it was um, really a a bastion of indigenous and native activities along the Columbia River of salmon fisheries. Um, When Lewis and Clark came through, you know, they noted that there were so many salmon in the Columbia River that you could walk across it on the backs of salmon. Um, Just downstream from the, the current Hanford site was an area called Salila Falls. Salila Falls was a meeting ground for tribes up and down the coast of, from California up to Canada that would meet and, and, and trade uh, materials and goods and other items. And Salila Falls was a, uh, up until the, the Dalles Dam was built on the Columbia River, was a, a spiritual place for the, the Wanapin and the Yakima tribes In the Columbia River Basin because it was so plentiful of salmon and they would use gill nests to catch salmon Uh, but once that dam was built the Celilo Falls was flooded Uh, and you know it just one one domino after another uh, has fallen on these people in Hanford uh, I would argue is the biggest one Uh, but today the Yakima nation is very involved in the cleanup process although they're left out of some conversations um, I write uh, in the book about one steadfast activist, um, Russell Jim, who really uh, allowed his people to have a seat at the table when it came to the the dealings at Hanford. He stopped it from becoming uh, a waste dump in the the '70s and '80s. Uh, he went to Congress and and fought for his people and was really a, an an amazing activist. And he passed away a number of years ago now, but. Um, his legacy still lives on, and without his voice, uh, you know the the people would have continued to be, um, you know, relegated as second class citizens. Which, uh, of course, we're we're fighting alongside them now to ensure that this cleanup is done properly and that their lands are one day returned, even if it takes seven generations.
0: Mm-hmm. And and do you see other cancer clusters there, or clusters of various illnesses?
3: So there haven't been, uh, I would argue, proper longitudinal studies done. And, and part of the problem is there. There during the course of its lifespan, uh, there was a number of intentional releases of radioactive material along with other accidental releases. Uh, a lot of those people that were exposed to those releases are no longer with us. So uh, doing those sort of longitudinal studies are really difficult because the people aren't there. But anecdotally, uh, and, you know, Russell Jim wrote about this and talked about this a lot. Uh, he and, and people that he was around, his family members and others had high rates of thyroid cancers. They had high rates of uh, arthritis in young men and women. Um, and also there's other uh, farmers in the region that talk about the, you know, the cancer miles and, and areas that were highly contaminated and impacted uh, farmers uh but the government's never been held accountable for any of this uh, much like they haven't been held accountable for the the testing that was done uh, detonating bombs in you know in the in the desert west um and the people that were impacted by that uh, similarly in Hanford uh, people have not really been compensated or acknowledged as being victims of nuclear colonialism
0: yeah and um you mentioned the farmers and, and the non-native uh, people who live there, who live there. Um, it's interesting what you write in the book that um, many of them were very proud to work in that plant. They um, saw it as uh, their patriotic duty and so on, but uh, they didn't end up any better than... Um, the others, did they?
3: No, you know, and I think it's, I think we need to place ourselves back into the 1940s when there was this World War Two fever that was spreading all across the country and the patriotic fervor that went with it. Um, and the Manhattan Project obviously was an integral part of that, and at, at Hanford, um the The development of the site, uh, the first reactor was the B Reactor, but uh, there's many aspects of the project that were going on and the laborers that were coming in to work on building those structures all lived in the town of Richland. Um, and many of them weren't even aware what their neighbors were working on. It was that top secret. Um, and I think the, you know, it was creating a j- jobs, obviously, but it was, um, I think they had to justify what they were doing, even though they really didn't know what they were doing as being part of the war machine, right? I mean, it was similar, everybody was pitching in in some ways, but um, I think uh, it's a very interesting topic to discuss like why they uh, continue to have that sort of view of their legacy. Um, Today, Hanford still celebrates the atomic age, even though the biggest disaster zone in the Western hemisphere is, you know, just, A little ways away from from the town of richland uh the high school in richland is called the bombers they have their their logo is a big r with a mushroom cloud exploding at the top of it Um, the the breweries in town name their beers plutonium porter and half-life hefeweizen and you know it's everywhere you go um that atomic age is still celebrated and uh, of course, we, they, there's there's not a memorial for the victims of Nagasaki, uh, which the the fuel for the bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki was developed at Hanford. Um, so it's sort of an erasure of that history. Um, but I think in in doing so, um, it it lets them off the hook for the responsibilities that they they've had. Um, but that's not to say that everybody agrees with that. I mean, there is a, you know, even among the, at the high school, there's a movement to try to get the logo changed. So there are some, Mm. there's some, some things happening and, you know, maybe the discussion, uh, with the Oppenheimer movie will, will sort of push that along a little bit. Uh, but today, um, the cleanup project is big business. Uh, the, the, the tally tally right now, they're estimating it's going to be $677 billion before this thing's remediated. Um, But the the way that it's going, it's probably going to be a trillion dollars by the end of the decade. It was only like 300 million dollars or 300 billion dollars, excuse me, just a few years ago. So exponentially, the price tag is going up and the people that live in Richland are profiting. So they have to justify the history of Hanford to justify the, you know, the legacy that exists today and, and the cleanup work that's happening.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah. My guest is Joshua Frank. He's an award-winning journalist and editor of Counterpunch. He is co-author of several books with Jeffrey St. Clair from Counterpunch. Uh, most recently before this book, The Big Heat, Earth on the Brink. And we are talking about his most recent book, Atomic Days, The Untold Story of the Most Toxic Place in America, It Been Hanford. You are welcome to join the conversation at 608 256 2001, extension 9. You can also join us on social media at War Talk on, should we say X? and um, A Public Affair on um, Facebook. So let's stay there um, a little bit still at the town of Richland. Um, Tell us about the B-reactor. Sure.
3: Well, you know, the B-reactor was the first plutonium production site, the commercial site in the world, um, and it produced plutonium for weapons, uh, and there were a number of other reactors that ended up being built, but, but the B Reactor was the first one, and the B Reactor now is a national monument. Uh, not a war memorial, mind you, but a, a celebration of the atomic age. Um, I just read that they're gonna be closing it down for a little bit, but uh, for, the, for the last decade, it's been open to the public. Um, I visited there. Uh, you get to walk in to this sort of metallic, kind of ominous building with a huge American flag draped inside and and look up at these cylinders and other things and (laughs) old computer devices, and it's almost like you're on a movie set. It's it's kind of an eerie situation. Um, But uh, the B Reactor um, was just the first of nine that were eventually built, Um, but they still celebrate it as as a huge achievement of, of scientific ingenuity and engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, which is kind of a, it's, a, it's a it's a strange when you're in there to think that the the fuel for this bomb decimated an entire city, and and left a legacy of poison right right there on site. Um, there was a similar uh, site in, in one of the things I write about in the book is a potential for a catastrophic accident at Hanford. Uh, one of the whistleblowers I talked to was is, is now retired um, Department of Energy scientist Donald Alexander. And he went to Russia in the 80s to study uh, this area called Mayak. Uh, Mayak was a sister facility uh, to, in the Soviet Union to Hanford that produced plutonium for their atomic arsenal. Um, and there was an huge accident that happened there in 1957 um, that was the, uh, as far as radioactive releases go, it was the third largest ever in history. And a lot of people have never heard of it. And that's because it was secret. Uh, just like Hanford, uh, the Mayak operation was completely secret. The people that lived around Mayak didn't know what Mayak, what was going on at the facility. Even those that worked there, not everybody knew what was happening. Um, and then when this huge explosion happened at one of their waste tanks, uh, it uh, decimated a, a huge area. Entire villages were destroyed. Um, and Donald Alexander went out there to share information. This was after the end of the Cold War when we started sharing some more information um, with the with the Russians on their, their cleanup project and trying to learn what they were doing as compared to Hanford. Um, and Donald Alexander came back very concerned that a similar accident could happen at Hanford that happened at Mayak. Um, and one of the things that could happen is in these tanks, you have hydrogen that's off-gassing. So they continually have to like let it go. It's sort of like boiling water on the stove. And if you don't let the air out, it could boil over. In the case of hydrogen, if they don't uh, l- release some of that hydrogen and other stuff, uh, you could have a buildup in one of these tanks. And if there's a spark or something ignites that hydrogen, you could have a huge, huge explosion that would really be like unlike anything this country has really ever experienced, aside from some of the atomic tests in the, in the West. Um, but in this case, it would be completely unknown. Um, and, you know, you would have, uh, you know, it would decimate the Northwest. Uh, the Columbia River would be totally uh, poisoned and contaminated. Um, and some of that debris would make its way to you, too, it would make its way east, it would make its way to Wisconsin, of course, all the way to the east coast Uh, when mount st helens blew there was ash spread you know all the way through the midwest Um, and as we've learned with some of the atomic tests that happened in the west uh, the radioactive fallout from these kind of explosions is far and wide and the impacts take a long time of course there's immediate impacts on site but some of the other impacts are more lingering and they make it their way into the food supply uh, you know years later and um, something catastrophic like that is very likely if if we don't get this under control out there. Um, and Donald Alexander was very concerned about that kind of accident. And there's precedent for it because of what happened at Mayak.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and just to be clear, he was concerned about it at the time, but uh, this scenario, which thankfully hasn't happened, um, might still happen.
3: It's always a possibility. And the longer that this waste sits in these tanks, the... A possibility of this happening uh, grows by the day, um, which is why, you know, even those that support, you know, our weapons production and, and the, the atomic industry are still very concerned and they know that they need to get this waste out of these tanks and get it into a situation that isn't as volatile.
0: You know, I want to ask you about that, just take a little detour here for a moment, because there's a lot of talk nowadays about how we can uh, maybe not solve um, climate change, but slow it down by using nuclear power, which uh, to me seems like... um, how to say it nicely, um, a very, very bad idea, shall we say. Um, what 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 do you think from from everything that you've learned from uh, researching and writing this book, is is that a good idea?
3: Well, you know when we talk about the solutions to climate change, we really are talking about how we're leaving the planet for future generations, right? Um, and when we talk about atomic energy, I think that we have to address the waste issue that comes along with this process. So while there might not be carbon emissions, for instance, during the fission process, uh, when it produces energy, there are carbon emissions all along the way of the nuclear fuel chain uh, from the, the, you know, from mining uranium, which is very carbon intensive to building these facilities to the transport of this waste. Um, But on the topic of waste, we haven't we don't have a permanent disposal area uh, for waste in this country for high-level radioactive waste. Um, so that's a really, really big problem. Uh, and if we we're producing more and more of this stuff, um, there's potential for for accidents. Um, it's just like we were talking about plutonium lasting for so long. Uh, you, it's it's hard to uh, even fathom what the world may look like 100 or 200 years from now, but imagine 1,000 years from now. And Imagine if we have 100 new atomic plants, nuclear plants uh, all across across the country, and uh, they're all producing waste. Even the new novel small modular reactors they're pushing, which are sort of like small versions of these big commercial reactors, they still produce waste. Um, And we don't have a place to put that waste. That waste uh, is a problem because it remains hot for a very long time. Um, and even when it's able to be cold stored, they still have to have it in an area that is not volatile. So, um, if there's an earthquake, for instance, um, if there's sabotage of some kind, uh, you could see a you know you could see some kind of catastrophe. Um, and so, I think it's a really I think it's I, I, I don't support uh, nuclear energy as a as a solution to climate change uh, because I think that we need to focus on renewables that don't pose these types of problems. Um, the waste that comes from producing atomic energy uh, is one step closer to being able to be used in an atomic bomb. Um, and then as, we, as we've learned in Ukraine, uh, Zaporizhia, uh, now we know that these plants can be also be used as tools of war. Uh, Taiwan has uh, nuclear plants. Who's to say that they aren't going to be used as tool, tools of war if there's some kind of conflict that happens there between China and the U.S. or, or another country? Uh, there's uh, nuclear plants in the in the Middle East, for instance, as well. And who's to say that those aren't going to be used as tools of war? You know, no other fuel source, uh, energy source poses these types of risks. And, um, you know, when you when you do those type of risks and al- risk analysis, you know, and there's a lot of other things we could talk about as well. But When you do those kind of risk assessments, I think uh, you you just have to, you know, you have to mark off nuclear as as an answer because it just carries too many problems.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And like you mentioned earlier about Hanford, they put it on the Columbia River because they needed access to cold, clean water. Um, Mm -hmm. So that is true, I believe, to any kind of nuclear plant. And that means that if there are a hundred nuclear plants, um, they will be on a hundred bodies of water and it pollutes the water, doesn't it?
3: Yeah. Yeah. There are some sodium cooled plants and other things that are in development. Um, but none of them are operational, uh, that I'm aware of that don't, don't require water and they need water to cool down the reactors. They need water to cool down the spent fuel rods, which is the the waste that is produced through the process. Um, and when that water runs out when it runs low um you know zaporizhia right now is relying on water in a reservoir after the dam broke or was destroyed um and if that water runs out we could see something terrible happen um in france which a lot of proponents of nuclear energy talk about as like this perfect (laughs) nuclear state um the last two summers ago when there was a massive heat wave across Europe. Uh, the water in the rivers was too warm to cool down the reactor, so they had to shut down the reactor. So this notion that nuclear also is so, you know, reliable is also false. Um, and so if the water level goes low, if the rivers heat up, which we know is happening, um, that causes a problem too. So there are a lot of factors that that play into it.
0: Hmm. So, uh, would it be correct to say that that whole notion of using nuclear power um, against, or you know, to to fight uh, climate change, is um, something that the nuclear industry is putting out there because they can continue making uh, big. Um, profits, but um, it's it's not really something we need.
3: No, and I would say it's a distraction. Um, because even if all of the things that the, the industry says about atomic energy is being safe, reliable, and all those things, even if we were to believe those things, which obviously are lies, um, they're not going to be able to roll out atomic energy uh, fast enough to solve the climate crisis. You know, it takes a decade to build a commercial reactor. Um, we don't have that kind of time. Uh, it takes uh, decades to develop uranium mines, we're running out of uranium, um, and they have to go and find it and open new mines. Those, that takes a really long time to happen as well. There's a lot of, uh, you know, on the time frame side of things, it takes takes forever. And then on the cost side, it it costs billions of dollars to build these facilities in California, where I live, uh, Governor Newsom um, has kept the remaining uh, plant open Diablo Canyon, even though a number of years ago, uh, the the, the labor unions came together with the utilities and with the, the state and decided they did this big report and study and said, "Yeah, it's actually going to be more cost-effective if we shut this thing down, invest in efficiency and renewables, and wean ourselves off of a nuclear energy." Well, Governor Newsom, with you know being lobbied by the atomic industry now, is throwing billions of dollars to keep this thing open, even though it's right on the coast, on a, a, in a seismic area. You know, it's a looming disaster. There's all kinds of problems there, and taxpayers are bailing out. Uh, the energy company to keep this thing open all in the name of fighting climate change um so it's it's a distraction we should be instead investing that money in renewables and uh you know we can get into that as well but you know revamping our cities so we're less reliant on vehicles and those sorts of things as well because there's obviously problems with lithium mining and and, and other things too but uh, i think talking about and focusing on uh, nuclear power as a as an answer is ends up being a distraction and that's one of the things i really took away from this book i mean i never was a a uh, proponent of nuclear technologies, but I really became even more wary of, of going down this road, knowing that we haven't even dealt with the problems that we created in the past. Um, and a lot of the proponents would like to think that uh, weapons production and energy production are totally different and aren't connected. Well, they're connected financially. They're connected at the policy level, and the government's always going to be heavily involved in in the industry because of the risk of proliferation of weapons. Um, so, you know, one funds the other, and they go hand in hand. Uh, you know, I, it's like saying that you oppose the war in uh, Iraq, but, you know, supported Pentagon spending, you know, it didn't really work like that. Right. So it's the same when we, when we talk about these technologies.
0: Yeah. Oh, as it was in Iraq um, that you are against war, but you support that war particularly for some reason, as yeah. I remember. <laughs> right. Um, gotcha. Yeah. Anyway. So let's get back to um, Hanford. You did um, talk to some of the people who worked there and to their families and uh what did you learn
3: um you know one of the things that i took away was the the commitment of those that are working there you know there's obviously the bureaucracy and the high level management and others but on the ground the the workforce is um very committed to doing and carrying out the job properly but unfortunately uh, there have never been proper safety protocols in place for some of these jobs. Um, and y- you, know, you have to imagine that going to work every day at a site that's laced with this type of radioactivity and these types of problems is very, very dangerous. Um, workers that work in the tank farm where all these tanks are located, were con- are consistently exposed to, uh, chemical vapors. Um, and then of course other accidents have occurred on site. So I talked to a lot of the victims out there that are, are worker victims, really, um, and they've been fighting for compensation and finally are, are starting to get it. But it is been a it's been a long slog. Uh, I've also talked to whistleblowers, of course, who um, talk about how even when they're reporting these safety violations to management, they go ignored. And that's largely because, you know, that gets in the way of uh, profit margins. Right. Um, when there's a problem on site, they'd have to s- shut down, uh, and every minute that things not, you know, going forward, uh, is lost, uh, profits. So workers are expendable out there, uh, just like the indigenous community was, uh, back when it was built uh, in many ways. So, you know, I, I think that the thing that I took away is that there needs to be much more accountability out there. Um, and I think the public needs to be much more aware of where their tax dollars are going. I mean, this is the, by far the largest environmental cleanup project the world has ever seen and, and most people have never heard of it and i think that's kind of uh, you know that needs to change
0: yeah yeah quite amazing we have um a caller on the line for you josh others are also welcome to join the conversation if they have a relevant question or comment 608-256-2001 or um join us on social media hi I'm are on the air
1: well, hi Essie and uh, Alex. I just um, this is Amy Schulz and I'm the uh, president of the local chapter of Physicians for Social Responsibility in mm-hmm. uh, Wisconsin. And um, I just wanted to endorse everything that you're saying. Um, you bring up so many important, you know, uh, um, uh, points for our listeners to hear. And I also just want to encourage uh, anybody that's listening and interested in working on this issue. We are trying to close. Point Beach uh, nuclear reactors on the, lakes, lake, um, on the shores of Lake Michigan. And if people want to look at um, the problems there, including it being one of the most embrittled and most vulnerable reactors in the country uh, to a nuclear accident. I wish people would look at that. And um, our website for that is Closed Point Beach Nuclear. Um, They are trying to extend their license from uh, presently 60 years to another 20 years to um, a total of 80 years when these reactors were only designed for 40 years. So anyway, I just wanted to thank you again. And Amy, again, before and-
0: before you go, um, I want to, first of all, thank you for your work, but also ask you, um, it's like it's like with Hanford, right? I used to hear about it probably 20, 30 years ago. I really um, haven't heard about it for a long time. And the same with the nuclear plants that you have mentioned, um, I used to hear about them, and, and I really haven't in a long time. So again, I appreciate that you have called and uh, are putting them back on um, our consciousness. But why do you think that is? That uh, nuclear, the the dangers of nuclear power, let alone nuclear weapons, has become so uh, muted.
1: Well, I, I think that it's a lot of things, SC, including that, you know, we feel like we're up against a lot of money, uh, which the nuclear industry has. And unfortunately, they were um, just granted a lot of money with the Inflation Reduction Act to continue the nuclear program as a as quote unquote solution to climate change, which um, Alex po- uh, correctly pointed out is not correct. <laughs> yeah. You know, and yeah. Um, and so we're we're up against money, and um, and I think too that you know there are so many other things that are on people's radar that um, it's hard for people to kind of have the bandwidth to be able to absorb all of these things. But we um, certainly, especially with what's going on in Ukraine, recognize one what's going on at Zaporizhia, which is that it's in the middle of a, a battlefield, and two that um, the chances of The war in Ukraine escalating to uh, an all-out nuclear exchange is quite great, uh, just given that they talk about using these battlefield nuclear weapons. And, you know, while battlefield nuclear weapons are lower yield, the one at Hiroshima is falling under that category in terms of the the amount of damage that it does. And so people um, really need to understand that, you know, we certainly are – Living with uh, an incredible danger What what happened, you know, during the um, height of the Cold War, which means people started to say, hey, let's get some treaties and decrease the numbers of our, our um, nuclear weapons. It was uh, very effective in, in cutting the numbers down from over, say, 60,000 nuclear weapons down to closer to 13,000. We still have 13,000. And we know that if there's more than 100 that were exploded, like, say, in a small exchange, that we would have nuclear famine and over two billion people would die. So that's pretty darn serious. Yeah.
0: So, yeah. 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 Well thank you so much, Amy. Appreciate your call. Appreciate your work. Um Josh? Anything you'd yeah. like to add? Amy
3: Amy made so many great points. Um, you know, one one thing that often comes up when I talk, especially to younger people, because there's been a lot of us that have been around a little longer and, and especially those Uh, that have been working on these issues for for generations and in many ways we're very super successful um and of course we've lived through the accidents at chernobyl and and fukushima but when i talk to younger people it's sort of that's all in the rearview mirror and the propaganda that comes out of the nuclear industry and and like amy said they're very well funded um, and articulate and Uh, rightfully, I think the the youth are concerned about climate change. And when presented with an an easy solution, uh, like nuclear power, saying, hey, look, we have this technology, it's a lot safer than they say it is, those accidents won't happen again. I mean, and you have Bill Gates and others out there promoting this, Oliver Stone's creating propaganda documentaries. Um, It's captivating, right? It's captivating to this, to the young audience that that is very concerned about the future of the planet. So I think it's really imperative among those of us that uh, are concerned about this to, to push back on that and and to point out the risks that go along with it because they're not hearing about those risks. And I think once they do, they realize that this is not a solution or a road we should go down. Um, and there's many aspects that we can talk about. Obviously, the proliferation issue, the waste issue, um, but also the, the issue of uranium mining, which uh, it was really, really serious, and it was one of the things that, you know, was left out of the Oppenheimer film is the impact that this whole industry has had on indigenous communities, uh, the Navajo, the Diné in New Mexico in particular, from the testing of bombs to uranium mining there, and the legacy that of cancer that they have been left with, um, you know, and, and to think that we're going to support an industry that's going to just go right back to those kind of kinds of areas to exploit their resources on their land. Um, you know, that's that's something, It's a problem that um, the nuclear industry doesn't want to talk about. Uh, but I think a lot of people that support, the, you know, this idea of this technology are, are simply not aware of the externalities that come along with it.
0: Yeah. Well, we have another caller for you. Um, Steve, you're on the air.
2: Yes, uh, SD and Josh. I'd like to make listeners aware of the MGM release from 1946, titled The Beginning or the End, that although a dramatization of the Manhattan Project incorporates fascinating, albeit creepy, documentary footage of the Hiroshima explosion itself, hmm. um, available for special order or rent at uh, a local off-state street uh, retail outlet. Um, but spe- You, you can
0: say the name. I think people I, might want to know.
2: Four-star four video. Okay, Gilman thank street. you. Yeah. Uh, and I uh have made it available for rent there um I happen to be taking the Amtrak to Portland in a few weeks, and I see that it does make a stop ten miles from Rich- Richland. Is there anything Josh, that the intrepid traveler might uh be able to see in terms of like a tourist spot uh, I'll take it you know um. Oh, I, I, I would get
3: off. I would get off in Richland and walk around. You know, it's a really nice town. People are very friendly. Um, and the Columbia River goes right through town. It's really beautiful. Depending on how much time you have, you could go up. Uh, you know, take rent a car or, or I, I don't think an Uber or <laughs> I don't think you can bicycle out there. But go on out to Hanford. Um, you you might we can't get into the facility, but you go to the White Bluffs area. That's a really beautiful hike that overlooks the columbia river and also will give you a panoramic view of the of the site itself and you can see some of the buildings that are out there um you know i, I think that's it's it's safe enough to do to do that um and can he if, visit
0: it, the bee reactor
3: uh you know what? he might be able to visit the bee reactor although they were going to be closing it down for visits but you'd have to look look into that if, if it's open you can definitely take a tour of the bee reactor but i warn you that it's uh, you know, it's gonna be full of, of, of pro war propaganda.
0: Well, actually, Josh, I, I I must just interject that you mentioned in the book how you took your um, then fiance, I think, or, or girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, she didn't know you were taking her there, and she's now your wife. And I have to say, she must love you very much. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, I think she was, you know, she was from she's from Portland, um, and she didn't know a lot about the history of Hanford either. So I think we were both sort of. Um, you know, it was an adventure. It was um, but, interesting. You know, I think I think an educational one. If you go in with a critical lens, um, you come out. Uh, you know, really concerned about about the future of the site.
0: Okay, so there's um, we are running out of time, but there's several things I still want to get to. Um, so you mentioned that the people who work there and that um, were um, affected by it negatively. Uh, uh, might now start getting some money but what happened to them what what kind of ailments what happened
3: Um, there's all kinds of of problems and things that they've experienced the 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 workers that have been exposed to chemical vapors have developed you know things like uh, brain brain atrophy disorders that essentially starts eating away at your brain and you you have early onset dementia uh, they go, go, goes along with, you know, inhaling this type of stuff, uh, similar to like black lung. They develop emphysema. Um, it creates all kinds of nerve damage. Those that have been exposed to radioactive materials, you know, that gets into your bones and into your nervous system over time, it builds up and they experience excruciating pains. Uh, some develop melanomas all over their body. Uh, it impacts their, their vision, um. And, you know, it, 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 there's a so so many different problems that that developed based on the type of exposure and the accidents and the things that they've experienced. So there's a number of things that it, that that happened, but none of them good. Um, and I think that we need to be much more cognizant and aware of the risks and the potential for disaster out there. And then these workers um, are the ones that are, are facing this dilemma day in and day out. And they and their unions, I would argue, aren't doing enough to step up to protect them.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm going to take another caller, and then I want to ask you at least one more question. Uh, Gary, you're on the air.
2: Hi, thank you for taking my call. Uh, I was active with a large uh, anti-nuclear group, Nuclear Energy Information Society in Chicago from 79 to 82. And I was got access to NRC documents on a regular basis. I was getting four or five packages mailed a month. Uh, like between 10 and 20 pounds of it. And I would go through these and there were just thousands per month of what they call minor incidents. And they were shocking what they considered minor. And I just wanted to basically say that, that American people actually knew um, all of these small incidents that lead to bigger incidents, they would have a different view. Thank you for taking my call. Yeah.
0: Thank you, Gary. Josh. Yeah.
3: Thanks, Gary. Yeah, you know. Well, first of all, I can <laughs> I feel this pain, uh, you know, being being delivered, you know, troves of documents and <laughs> having to thumb through those to find good information. Uh, but uh, Gary's right. Uh, Tritium, for example, is uh, something that's continually released from from facilities, and NRC says, "Oh, it's safe." Um, you know, there's con- constant uh, release of wastewater like Fukushima, but down here near where I live, San Onofre Nuclear Plant, which is shuttered, uh, still has waste on site because they don't have a place to put that waste. So they constantly are trying, have to cool down those reactors and re-release that water into the Pacific Ocean. And their theory is dilution is, is the solution. Um, but uh, as we know, that radioactive material ends up in the ocean and stays there for a very, very long time. And those that are exposed to it, obviously fish, but also people that recreate in the water, surfers, swimmers, others are exposed to this material there. So, um, and this is happening all over the country, of course. Uh, But the public is very unaware of that and the risks that those pose because they're consistently told that it's very minor, that, oh, this isn't enough to really do anything. Well, the problem is maybe at that one instance it's not, but if you're exposed over time, over decades, over a long period of time, you you can develop um, ailments and it, it can cause a lot of problems, um, especially when it gets into your drinking water and other things. So there's a lot of problems that the, this country is definitely not aware of, and the government um, isn't very transparent about the problems that these, these plants pose.
0: Yeah, well, I want to ask you about uh, the corporations that are making huge profits out of all of that they did building it they are doing now um so-called decommissioning it Uh, well i suppose they are um cleaning it to some degree but talk about the you mentioned you mentioned numbers but um Mm -hmm. talk talk about that some more and um remind us who's paying for it
3: sure well Obviously, taxpayers are paying, footing the bill for this, uh, the cleanup at Hanford. Um, but one of the things that I don't think a lot of people understand are the way these contracts are built. So the contracts are what they call cost plus contracts. So it's sort of similar. If you had some work that you're going to have done, let's say you're going to have a new bathroom put in in your house or something, and the contractor comes over and says it's going to be five thousand dollars, but um, you know, three months into work and they're still coming out there and they're like, actually, it's going to be ten thousand dollars. Well, imagine that times 100, uh, that's what's happening at Hanford, that they, they they do a cost projection and then they come back to the Department of Energy and say, well, you know, it's actually more difficult than we said, it's going to be more expensive, it's going to take longer. Um, so they end up getting a contract extension and the, the the price tag continues to balloon. And that's what we've seen happen at Hanford since the since its inception. And it really gets into Uh, the problem of contracting this work out in the first place. Um, I think that the Department of Energy is understaffed out there. I've been told that by whistleblowers that they just don't have. Donald Alexander in particular uh, told me that, you know, they just don't have the technical staff to oversee every aspect of the project. So the contractors uh, run the show out there. And when you have huge, huge profit incentives, uh, very little accountability, uh, you have problems that that that, you know, continue. Um, they are getting paid to not get the job done. And I think that that taxpayers and the US public should be aware of that and be concerned and demand congressional hearings to to hold these corporations and the Department of Energy accountable.
0: Yeah. We have about one minute. I I also maybe I'll just mention it so people know about something more that's available in the book. Um, I did not know about this. The U.S. government studies of the effects of plutonium on humans. Um, If you can talk about it for like 40 seconds. Mm
3: (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, we know a lot about the Nazi experiment, experiments during World War II, but I think what's less known are the experiments on uh, people here in the U.S., um, primarily black individuals uh, that were un- unknowing to them, injected with uh, radioactive materials and with plutonium and tested by various sadistic doctors to see what this type of radioactivity would do to their bodies over time. Um just horrible, horrible stories, uh, very syphilis, similar to the syphilis experiments, but very, very less known. Um, and I think it's it's, you know, part of that atomic legacy that wasn't in the Oppenheimer film, but I think that more people should be aware of
0: yeah well, Joshua Frank, thank you so much for your book, Atomic Days, The Untold Story of the Most Toxic Place in America. Thank you for joining us today. and yeah, hopefully we um uh, added a little bit to um, to the knowledge of our listeners and, and to their alarm about what's going on thanks thank so you much so much
3: you. it was great to be with you, thank you
0: and thanks to uh, Jade then Amy and Jack today on STD Noor will be talking again next week stay tuned for the funny boys you probably need it by now